Our Old Testament reading today will come from Psalm 23, followed by the New Testament reading, which is uh, our sermon text for today, James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. And again, this is a, a custom that we do here at Emmaus, but I do want to make the note, these Old Testament readings have application, applicability to the scriptures that we go through. So just be very cognizant of that um, and, and make sure you make that connection. And we'll come back around to Psalm 23 at the end uh, to make that connection. But always know that when we do these Old Testament, New Testament readings, uh, there's a purpose behind it and the connection, the continuity of the Old and New Testament. So Psalm 23, Psalm 23, hear now the reading of God's most holy word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. New Testament scripture, James 1 verses 9 through 18. Here again the reading of God's most holy word. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my Beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of it, that you would bless the hearing of it. Your word, Lord, is just nourishment, Lord. It quenches the thirst that we have in the depths of our souls, Father. And I pray, Lord, that today, as your word is preached and proclaimed, that hearts are changed, hearts are transformed, Lord, that your people would hear your word and they would hear it clearly, Lord, and, uh, clearly, Lord, and, and the application would be made from it, Lord. So I pray, Lord, for this time as we go through your word that is nourishing to our souls, Father. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Again, church, it's, uh, it's been several months since I last preached from the book of James. And so as part of today's introduction, I'm going to begin by just giving a brief recap of James 1 through 8. Um, as you know, it's very important that we always look at a section of Scripture in its proper context. And uh, due to the amount of time that's passed, uh, it'd be good for us to go back and just get a little bit of a recap on it, especially considering how James 1, 1 through 18 is connected as one section. So we remember that uh, in verse 1 of chapter 1 in James, <clears throat> he tells us who he is writing to. Namely, he says, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. James's audience would have been primarily of Jewish background, hence the multiple Old, uh, Old Testament connections he makes throughout his book. However, we know that James is ultimately writing to the New Testament church. Therefore, we can conclude that James fully understood the dispersed 12 tribes to ultimately be that of the New Covenant people of God. See Galatians 3.28, Romans 10.12, and Romans 11.26. 
Next, it's important to see that James chapter 1, verses 2 through 18 are all connected as one section of writing under the theme that we've been looking at, how we are to face trials, or more particularly, how we are to face trials of various kinds. In verses 2 through 4, which I covered in my first sermon, we saw that James was teaching us how we are to, quote, consider it joy when we face trials of various kinds. In other words, James was providing for the people of God the proper worldview perspective that we should adopt in the midst of our trials and tribulations as we sojourn on this earth. In fact, the entire book of James is a series of lessons and examples that provides a proper worldview perspective to the people of God, specifically addressing how Christians should both think and act during times of trial and tribulation. James's epistle accomplishes this by presenting uh, this dichotomous theme throughout his entire book, where the wisdom of man or the wisdom of the world is repeatedly contrasted with the wisdom of God. In verse 2, James addresses, quote, his brothers that are facing trials of various kinds, and this use of brothers is further affirmation of his audience being that of the New Testament church. James's main message in verses 2 through 4 was to encourage God's people to consider their trials, their various trials, as joy, for God uses such trials to perfect his people and as God's purpose in these trials, according to James. Next, in James 1, 5 through 8, which is what my second sermon covered, James goes beyond just a perspective that Christians should, quote, consider when facing trials, and he goes deeper into explaining how believers can attain this sort of perspective. They could do it through wisdom, more specifically the wisdom of God. James states that in order to understand our trials as joy, we need wisdom, the wisdom of God, in order to do so. But this wisdom must be asked for, according to James, and it must be received in faith. For James tells us that to ask for such wisdom and then respond in doubt means that the asker is, quote, like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, verses 6 through 7. And so it's very important, church, that we understand the connections between verses 2 through 4, and then 5 through 8, and today 9 through 18. Because again, if we desire to properly understand and apply God's word correctly, we must always be careful to understand a passage within its proper context and in light of the surrounding scriptures. And so this brings us now to James 1, 9 through 18, which these verses, verses 9 through 18, can be broken down into three smaller sections. In verses 9 through 12, section 1, James gives a more direct and specific example of how the types of trials that many in the church that are um, enduring at the time, and uh, he talks about how the rich and the poor will experience these different. He has very different words uh, for the rich and the poor in uh, these particular verses. In verse 13 through 15, James gives clarification in the topic of temptations that believers often will face in the midst of their trials. And then in verses 16 through 18, James gives a sort of conclusion to this section on facing trials as he gives his audience theological insight into the role of God in the midst of his people's trials and tribulations in this life. Uh, These three messages or portions of scripture, James 1, 2 through 4, 5 through 8, and today 9 through 18, all combine into this one section addressing uh, holistically how the church is to respond to these trials of various kinds. Verse 1 through 18 also, this is another area that it's very, very important, is it also serves as the foundation for the entire book of James. All of their sections of James throughout the rest of the book will in some way uh, or another build upon or reference these first 18 verses as we continue to study James into the future. And so we'll now look more closely at verses 9 through 18 as we conclude this uh, foundational section and as we work more carefully to uh, understand and apply the divine teachings within. And so in the first section, verses 9 through 12, James begins in verse 9 by stating that the lowly brother should boast in his exaltation, whereas the rich in his humiliation will pass away like a flower of the grass. Here James continues his paradoxical approach 
as he contrasts two particular words, the lowly or the poor against the rich. As we have seen, James has a continual theme of presenting his teachings, utilizing this, uh, as I claimed, in my, as I coined in my last uh, sermon, this Poseidian approach. Um, if you remember from my last sermon, uh, I encouraged you to watch the movie uh, Poseidon or Poseidon Adventures. Did any of you actually follow up on that homework assignment? Anybody? It's okay. I didn't, I, I didn't think that you probably would. It's a good movie, by the way. Um, but I'm going to give another quick overview of it because I think it's really important to understand the storyline of that particular film as it applies to what uh, James is doing. So for those of you who haven't seen the movie and didn't do your homework, uh, what's happening in this, in short, is that this, this, this massive boat has turned upside down. And the only way to get out of this boat, it's an adventure story the whole time, everybody's having to climb uh, from the top of the boat to the bottom to get out of the bottom of the boat. Everything has become flipped, right? And so you, you have these people that are going through, uh, and it's life or death situations, that they're trying to uh, find a way to um, rescuing, self-rescuing themselves, but the only way they can do it is to go through the bottom of the boat. So the whole time, everything is upside down. They're climbing over things upside down, and what was once up has now become uh, the other way around. And so I make continual mention of this film because its storyline is, is so useful in understanding James's paradoxical approach that he takes in making his points really throughout his entire book. James continually makes these claims that what appears to be up is actually down, and what appears to be down is actually up. But keep in mind that this teaching is not uncommon to the rest of the New Testament teachings. Uh, for Christ did this several times throughout the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 2 through 5 says this, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Also in Matthew 20, 16, at the end of the uh, parable of laborers in the vineyard, uh, Jesus states very, very clearly, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The point that this uh, Poseidian approach uh, makes is very fitting when it comes to the kingdom of God, for the world prioritizes one thing, where the kingdom of God prioritizes another. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so in staying true to this biblical approach of contrast, James pits two different people together in verses 9 through 11. One with an exhortation, and the other with a very stark warning. James says that the lowly brother should boast in his low position. James presents his brother as being poor, lacking power, lacking esteem. Most of the Christians in James' day uh, faced very difficult economic conditions, a vast number of them were, were slaves. They were literally poor and likely oppressed and seen as unimportant individuals socially and economically speaking. But these humble brothers, as James says, were actually very rich in the perspective of James. For these brothers were rich in Christ. James says that these brothers should glory in their high position with Christ. These poor individuals enjoyed an exalted spiritual status because of their relation to Christ. James tells these individuals that though they are at the bottom of the worldly kingdom, they are actually at the top of God's kingdom. But for the rich, in his humiliation, James had very different words because the rich, James says, will pass away like a flower of the grass. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits, James 1.11. The discussion of poverty and wealth in verses 9 through 11 is connected to both verses 2 through 4, as poverty being one of the most difficult trials, and verses 5 through 8, because wealth has great potential for dividing our loyalties and requires thus great wisdom and discernment. Furthermore, James refers to the poor as being, quote, a brother, but to the rich, he simply says, to the one who is rich. One is referred to as the brother, 
One is simply just given a title of the one who is rich. Latter phase uh, phrase is very ambiguous. If James has in mind a rich non-Christian, then his contrast is between a poor Christian who is to rejoice in his heavenly calling and the rich unbeliever who has nothing to boast about except his ultimate judgment for his wicked use of money. The fact that James elsewhere uses, quote, rich to designate non-Christians uh, in 5.1, which we'll see later, means that uh, this is likely what James had in mind as his main and primary point. However, the one who is rich could also, could also potentially refer to a wealthy Christian. The book of Proverbs frequently praised those who were diligent with their money and resources, which in turn often provided wise and godly men with uh, abundance and wealth. Make note of Proverbs 21.20, which says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Or Proverbs 10.4, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And so James is likely, first and foremost, condemning those who are rich and evil in the world, while at the same time giving a stern warning to the select few Christians who could have potentially been economically rich. James says that the poor believer should not despair in his poverty, but instead he should rejoice that he is rich in faith and an heir to the kingdom, found also in James 2.5. In contrast, the rich believer must be careful not to take pride in his worldly possessions, for he as a rich person will quickly Perish. The rich man should instead boast in his low position, for his relationship to Jesus is where his true, tre- uh, true treasure, treasure should lay. The rich man in verse 10 is likened to that of a flower of the grass as he passes away. And the audience would have been very familiar with this imagery that James was presenting as a burning wind blowing in from the Syrian desert. It would have dried up and withered the grass of the fields. Therefore, James provides a very picturesque description of the temporal nature of human riches. So James is precise to warn the church of the dangers of getting lost and enticed by worldly wealth. For worldly riches may seem to offer security, but James reminds us that those whom they become a god, that they will perish like a flower in the scorching heat. Therefore, we can conclude that James's words in verses 9 through 11 were to encourage the believers who were largely poor by reminding them that rich oppressors will not escape God's judgment. The rich oppressors ultimately will be bankrupt and oppressed in hell, but the poor, James's audience at large, will be rich in heaven. James's ultimate message here is that All earthly goods, all earthly kingdoms, all earthly properties will eventually fade away, but in Christ, all things will one day be transformed into the consummated kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is eternal, and the kingdom of God is where true wealth lies. In these verses, James is giving more than just a practical teaching on rich and poor. He is giving a theological teaching on where our true hope and security should ultimately come from. This is why, brothers and sisters, contentment in this life is so very important. Remember, James's whole message in this section is to consider our trials and tribulations as joy. This included those who are physically poor and oppressed. But God is intimately involved in all aspects of his people's lives, blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3. This is also why Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, these words, and listen very carefully to the words of Paul. For I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me must remember the situation Paul was in when he wrote those words too. He was in a place of great testing and temptation as he was imprisoned at that time. And yet Paul writes these words of contentment to us. And we can be content, therefore, brothers and sisters, in all circumstances in this life. 
poor or rich, low or high, in hunger or abundance, because in Christ we have all that we need. For that reason, in verse 12, James says the words, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, because our true treasure is always Christ. Is always Christ. James refers to this treasure specifically as the, quote, crown of life, which is the ultimate goal of all Christians, eternal life. More specifically, James's use of the crown implies that of a kingdom of Christ's eternal kingdom. And we must always be kingdom-oriented, church. Always. We must learn to look beyond the trials and tribulations of this life into the future reality of Christ's fully consummated kingdom where God will vanquish all other kingdoms and where we will reign with him as a royal priesthood in this eternal kingdom. James tells the believers that this, quote, crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him is what awaits them at the finish line. James was obviously drawing uh, here on something with which the audience would have been very familiar, specifically the realm of sports. This was also something that Paul frequently used throughout the New Testament. It's, it's an image that was used because the people of the New Testament would have been very familiar with this. Sports would have been a very popular thing during the times of James, uh, especially the sport of running. In the first century, as runners would prepare for a race, they would strip off everything, literally, uh, down to very minimal clothing because it would weigh them down and they would step up to the starting line and each runner would have prepared his mind for months or years, and, and his body for the race that was set before him. And if we were to imagine in our minds to be a runner at the starting line of such a race, as the race starts, we would put every ounce of strength and energy into that race, straining and pushing our bodies towards the finish line. But why? Why, why would we put so much energy and effort? Why did they put so much energy and effort? Um, what would the winner of this race receive? The winner would receive and be crowned with what was known as the victor's crown. Through the imagery of sports and a crown, James was affirming that Christians are running a race that will ultimately end in glory. A race where the Lord God himself will greet his people and will personally crown their efforts with eternal life and with the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The author of Hebrews directly mirrors this teaching of James in the 12th chapter of his book with these words. And again, I want you to hear, brothers and sisters, how this message is nearly identical to James in both his teaching and his imagery. So listen carefully as I read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Pay attention to it and see the connection that the author of Hebrews has with the words of James. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, seeing at a distance Christ. I didn't put my manuscript here to make a, a, a comment at this point, but I have to. To run the race with endurance with our eyes fixed on Jesus. If you've ever had to run long distances before, I'm not a long distance runner, but I know I set something way down. I say, I'll stop running when I get there. That's the point, right? That's what he's saying. That's your focus. You're tired. It may hurt. You, you, you grow weary, but you must keep your eyes fixed. You must keep them fixed on the goal that is before you. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What did Christ do? The same thing. He set the joy set before him, and he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What did Christ do? He set before him the goal. He accomplished that goal. And what does he get? He is now seated in the royal seat. That is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Verse 3. Consider him. So consider. Consider what Christ did as he ran the race for himself who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. For you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Christ suffered it. He ran the race. 
It was difficult for him. He finished strong. He is being our example here, the author of Hebrews is saying. Verse 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline. In other words, trials of various kinds. It is for the difficulties in this life that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. If you go through difficulties in this life, it's because the Lord loves you and is doing something. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our own good, that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. Trials of various kinds, church, seem painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Different. But if you're listening, you can see the the exact same message. We will struggle in this life, brothers and sisters. We will have difficulties. Christ did too. And he finished the race. And he set his eyes on the goal. And he walked through that goal. And he seated at the right hand of the Father. And the same crown awaits us. Not that we're exalted to the level of Christ, but you know exactly what I'm saying. That we are a royal priesthood that will reign with him. And in the same way, we understand that if you are a parent, you discipline your children. It's so easy for us to understand that concept. A child acts out, we must discipline them. It's for their own good. The child doesn't understand it. And he's saying, that's how it is with, with, with God. That's how it is with you. You have to understand that, that concept. Your child doesn't always understand discipline. We won't always understand discipline. But we must know it is always for our own good. And so we are to run the race that is set before us, knowing that our crowns of righteousness are what await us. In our race, in our race, we will struggle We will toil. We will even fall, brothers and sisters. But we will prevail. For the Lord is training us through discipline. Through discipline. For his eternal glory. He is using our trials and our tribulations. While disciplining us when necessary. To form us into something far greater than we could ever have imagined. In the next section, verses 13 through 15. James shows us that he is very aware that this, quote, training through trials that Christians go through has a contingency. Following his explanation on how the believer should endure trials, James makes the immediate connection between the endurance of our trials and the following temptations that we will almost certainly encounter. In verse 13, James plainly says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot and does not tempt anyone with sin. Or with evil. And is it not, church, in our difficult times that we are most tempted to neglect or even turn from the things of God? Yes, unfortunately, it is the times we need to be closest to the vine that we are instead tempted to forget and disregard the things of God. But James clarifies to his audience that it is not God who causes us to sin, for God does not and cannot tempt anyone to sin. James has already made it abundantly clear that our trials of various kinds are in fact taking place to work in us perfection, not sin. And so the question could be asked, if God cannot tempt us to evil, how is it that we sin? James, in anticipation of such question, gives a very clear and direct answer, saying in verse 14, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Here James leaves no doubt that we We are the individuals responsible for our own sin. No one else. We sin because we are sinners at the core. But isn't Satan the culprit, we might ask? Do we not sin because he tempts us to sin? Well, indeed he does. James is not denying this point. But the truth of the matter is that Satan could not have any success with us at all if it were not for the fact that we still struggle with the effects of sin within the heart. For we do not yet fully possess the nature of God, which gives us a complete freedom from the effects of sin. Instead, we possess a nature that readily inclines us towards it. We are no longer as God originally made us. We originally had an unwavering desire for God, but sin killed off this desire and replaced it with a desire for sin. 
As we engage with the sins outside of us, we are tempted to respond through the sins within us. We are wicked throughout the core. This is why you did not choose God, brothers and sisters. He rescued you. You were dead, and he gave you life. Because in Christ, as he gives you life and breathes it into you, your hearts are being transformed. Your hearts are being transformed. And at the core... At the core, as you endure various trials in this life, God is using those trials to change you into something far greater. This is why pertaining to the new covenant people, Jeremiah says in chapter 32, uh, verses 38 through 39 of his book, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. God is giving a new heart to the people of God. It is through Christ as his spiritual kingdom is going through and capturing the hearts of men. God is capturing the hearts of these men, bringing them into his eternal kingdom, and through this life, transforming them more and more into the image of his Son. In Christ, we have been reconciled to God, Ephesians 2.12. Though we still fight with sin, the day will come when God returns to judge, removing all sin from his people, and we will dwell with him forever. But in our time here on earth, for now, our fight with sin remains. And so in verses 14 and 15, James explains to the believer uh, through the use of uh, these two very vivid images how sin is able to do this work. And he gives us this, uh, these images so that the believer will be careful to not fall victim, to not fall prey to the effects of sin. The first image that he gives in verse 14 uh, is that of fishing. The words translated lured and enticed were fishing terms used to portray the image of a fish that was swimming downstream only to be drawn off towards something that seemed attractive and appetizing only to later discover that the bait had deadly hook in it. The second image in verse 15 that James uses is that of childbirth. Uh, Here with the words, James portrays uh, an image of a man lusting over a harlot only to be enticed and seduced. And the man then surrenders his will to lust where conception takes place between will and desire and lust then gives birth to sin. We must make careful note here that just because we are tempted, just because we're tempted does not mean that we have done anything sinful. For Christ himself was tempted many times. But what James is teaching us is that when desire, the desire of man, goes out and embraces and meets a forbidden thing, an unholy marriage takes place between the two, giving birth to sin. What begins as a seed in the heart becomes full-blown action in the will. This is what Jesus addressed in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, which I'm going to read because it is a very clear example of this. Matthew 5, verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, then your whole body go into hell. What Jesus is not teaching here is that if a person looks at someone with lustful intent, that it's the same as committing adultery. I've heard that teaching before. You've probably heard that teaching before. That's absurd. Um, Those are two very, very different things. What Jesus is teaching, and this is why he goes on in verses 29 through 30 to give safeguards against it. He says, if this is something that has tempted you, avoid the temptation. Because if you play with the temptation for too long, that seed grows in the heart. And it's only a matter of time before temptation becomes action. Right? If something happens first in the mind and it drives in the heart and then I think about it and I dwell upon it and then I act it out, that's how sin comes about. I've been in the counseling game for a long time, brothers and sisters. And it's amazing you, you learn things about people and, and about how sin works. And people don't come into the counseling office with certain sins that happen overnight. How this happened? It just happened. No, it didn't. I know way too well of how sin works. This happened years ago. And it started as a seed. And you had a full-blown weed that was 10 feet tall. And you disregarded it. And every single time, as we get to the core of the matter, you can trace these things back. These things do not happen overnight. And that's why it's so important and we have to pay 
such careful attention to this because what James is saying is that during these times of trials and tribulation, you're going to be more at risk of these temptations. So at the point when we could potentially be the weakest is the time when these temptations could therefore be the strongest. And when people walk around uh, with a cavalier lifestyle the, of the Christian faith, and they think, well, I can you know, maybe a re- read a verse every now and then, I'll try and make it to church. Maybe every time I get a chance, there is a war, brothers and sisters, that is taking place. And to not fight this war, you're already losing. To not engage with the spiritual disciplines daily, you're losing. I struggle with it, you struggle with it. It's difficult to do these things. You sit down and there's so many things that distract us, but there's a reason why spiritual warfare is painted as a warfare. There's a a war that is taking place for our hearts and our minds, and the temptations are all around us, and we have to stand firm in these temptations. And this is why Jesus clearly instructs his disciples in Matthew 26, 41, on the night of his arrest, and he says these words, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. If you're struggling with sin, brothers or sisters, brother or sister, where are you at with your spiritual disciplines? Jesus said that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And are you allowing your flesh to overcome? Because when these temptations come, you will fall prey to it. If there is sin in your life, it's because you have given in to these temptations. You are not cultivating the Spirit. The Spirit is not strong enough to withstand these things. God and Christ, through His Word, has given you everything that you need, and you simply are not abiding and utilizing it. So we must be careful to stay alert through the continual use of the spiritual disciplines while abiding in Christ daily, lest we fall into temptation and commit sin. Lastly, in verses 16 through 18, James encourages the reader not to be deceived by the temptations that present themselves during the times of trial and tribulation. James reassures the believer that God is ultimately good with only the best intentions for his people. We learn very clearly in Scripture that God does not tempt, but he does test, brothers and sisters. He does test. It is during trying times that we have a choice with which way we will go. Trials and tribulations always present us with a choice to trust in God or to not. James and his audience were very steeped in the Old Testament. And the word testing that James used back in verse 12 appears almost 40 times in the Old Testament. God tested Adam and Eve. We know how that went. God tested Abraham when he asked him to sacrifice Isaac. God tested Israel. And they wandered in the wilderness, which we have seen throughout our current study through Exodus and will continue to see. It's very likely that James had uh, this very point in mind referring to the Exodus people uh, when he used the word testing. Uh, That Israel's deliverance from Egypt, followed by episodes of hunger and thirst, followed by further deliverance, only produced grumbling and discontentment with the people of God. As Hebrews 4.2 states, they failed not because God enticed them to sin, but because of their faithlessness. But Moses, Moses the one who depicts Christ in the story of deliverance, passed this test. For his heart was focused on the person of God rather than on the situations before him, rather than on the trials and tribulations before him. So James says that God intends trials to promote endurance so that we who love God will receive the crown of life. And to endure trials, we need the wisdom and faith that comes from God. And if we fail to endure our trials, we should not blame God. If we fall into temptation, it's because we allowed our own desires to drag us into sin. We were not obedient to the things that Christ has given to us. For it is the goodness of God that motivates us to resist temptation. It is God and the goodness of God that gives us the ability to resist temptation. Contrary to being the source of temptation, God is good, and he desires what is best for his children. He is the author of all good things. James uses two different words for gift in verse 17. We could better and more literally translate this verse by saying it this way. Every good gift and every perfect donation is from above. Basically, anything good, church, that we get is because God is good. Amen? Here James is emphasizing the source of God and uh, of good things in this life and that they all come from God. Uh, And the word that he uses here more specifically is God is the, quote, father of lights that is the creator of all things. It was God who first said, let there be light, and light came into being out of nothing. 
Not only does God give us light, he also graciously provides for us everything that we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 God has given you everything you need to resist temptations, brothers and sisters. The sun rises day after day. The seasons change year after year. God is a God of order and constants. He does not change like shifting shadows, James 1.17. God is eternal. He is unchanging. And the salvation that he bestows upon his people is part of his everlasting covenant with them. In the same way that it was God who called forth light when creating the universe, it is, quote, out of his will, verse 18, that he brings forth the people of God into an eternal relationship with him. It is out of God's will that any single one of us has come into relationship with him. And what is the agent or the means that God uses to bring his people out so that we can see, so that we can be activated, so that we can respond? It is the, quote, word of truth in verse 18. This phrase, word of truth, appears five times in the New Testament. Once here and four other times by Paul, and each time it is a clear reference to the gospel. See Ephesians 1.13, Colossians 1.5-6. God wills our salvation, and he achieves it through the gospel. As Peter states in chapter 1, verse 23 of his epistle, You, you church, have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. This is the kindness and excellence of God. That God calls sinners to repentance through the preaching and hearing of his most holy word. And since in our salvation, our life now rests on God's unchanging goodness and not our own fickle choices and feelings, our salvation is forever and eternally secure. Thus, by trusting in the gospel of Christ, we, the people of God, become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This word first fruit was language from the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. We'll soon learn more about this topic as we continue our study in Exodus, but James and the rest of the New Testament uses this term first fruit metaphorically to describe the new life that takes place when the Spirit of God joins a believer to Christ and salvation. And so James concludes this section, verses 1 through 18, by saying that the people of God are God's first fruits. We, the people of God, are the best of his produce. Therefore, he will care for his people year by year, season by season, trial by trial. As we begin to move towards a closing, I'd like to offer you four points of reflective application from James 1, 9 through 18. That's why I like to title it, Reflective Application. I think there was a lot of application in there already. And there's four points that I'd really like to draw out and summarize uh, for us to take away in closing. Point number one. Point number one. Find your security in Christ alone. Find your security in Christ alone. Brother or sister, are you poor, according to the world? Are you financially burdened? Take heart. You're rich in Christ. Are you rich in this world? Then be warned that your riches will soon fade away and make certain that Christ is your only treasure. Don't let your heart wander because of the false security that your riches may bring you. Are you poor in spirit, brother or sister? Be encouraged and hear the words of the psalmist in Psalm 121. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Take heart in Christ. You are rich beyond measure and he will sustain you. Perhaps you're rich in Christ, brother or sister. The Lord has blessed you and you're in abundance spiritually right now, then praise the Lord and use your fortunate and blessed position to benefit others around you. As 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-4 through 4 states, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Brothers and sisters, no matter what your state is right now, no matter what you're going through, rich or poor, exalted or downcast, James's message for us is quite clear. May Christ and Christ alone be your true treasure in this life. He is our rock. He is our foundation. He is the security and our security, our eternal security in all things. And he will be faithful throughout all the days of our life. So we must trust in him. We must endure through him. We must rest in him. 
for we are secure in his loving arms. Point number two, from verse 12, the endurance of our earthly trials, the endurance of them, the the going through them is ultimately a blessing. The endurance of our earthly trials is ultimately a blessing. Remember James's word, words in verses two through four. Consider it joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Lord is using your trials, church. Every single one of them. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're enduring right now, no matter what you think that it is, there's one thing I know for certain, that everyone's trials in here is different. And you know exactly what it is. The Lord is using it. That is the message of James. He is using it to bless you ultimately. None of them are forgotten. Nothing will happen in this life that is outside of God's hand working this. This is 100%, 10 for 10. God is using everything to more perfectly mold you into the image of Christ. Into the image of Christ. Point number three. With trials also come temptations. With trials come temptations. Church, I hardly need to convince you of this point that temptations are often the strongest during trials and tribulations. When we go through times of testing, times of difficulty, many, many temptations abound. And so when we endure these difficult times, we must expect, don't think it could, you must expect temptations to come. In Christ, you can overcome these temptations. Outside of Christ, you will fail miserably. If you're failing miserably now, it's because you're outside of Christ. Get back to the vine. Come back to where you need to be. Be close to the Savior who's providing all that you need. And then, and only then, will you be victorious in your times of trials and testing. Then and only then. It's so dangerous, brothers and sisters, to walk at a distance from Christ. Right? Such a simple phrase, but you know exactly what I mean, walking at a distance with Christ. You know, how are you walking with Christ? I'm walking closely. It makes sense. How are you walking with Christ? I'm pretty far away right now, right? Where are you at? Are you clinging to him? Are you, are you grabbing onto his, his, his shirt and, and saying, I, I can't even walk. I need you to just carry me right now. Do you see him on the other side of the room and you give him a nod from time to time? Where are you walking with Christ? All of us know where, where that is in our minds. He's our only source in this life, church. It's so hard. The world that we live in today, it's difficult. I often don't know how a person who is outside of Christ can even make it. The, the lies you must buy into to find hope in this life outside of Christ. But we have Christ. And if we have Christ, we have everything. And we must prepare ourselves through continual fellowship with Him that we are prepared when the times of trials and testing come because they will come. So do not neglect your fellowship with Him. Be with Him. Walk closely with Him for trials and tribulations and temptations will come. And if we wish to endure them, we can only do so through Christ. As our Lord says in John 16, In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, Christ says. I have overcome the world. So read daily, pray daily, meditate on Him daily, be in fellowship weekly, so that when the time of testing comes in Christ, you will be victorious. Last point, point number four. Our victory over trials in this life is only through Christ. Our victory over trials in this life is only through Christ and for the glory of God. I'll read it one more time. Our victory over trials in this life is only through Christ and for the glory of God. If you've overcome a trial in your life, it's not you, church. I used to think I was pretty awesome that I came out of what I came out of and had half of a brain on top of me, and then I realized one day it wasn't me. It was God. God gave me the ability to overcome it. Outside of him, there was no hope. But in him, there's hope. If you've overcome a trial, it was only because you did it through Christ and it was for his glory. Church, all good things in this life come from God. Our salvation is a gift that comes from God. Since the beginning of time, God had created a universe that would give all glory and honor to his most holy name. So do not lose sight of what your purpose is in this life. For you were created by God for the glory of God. Salvation comes through Christ. Salvation is for Christ. And salvation is for Christ alone. Our lives, 
only exists because of God. The only reason you can sit here through this long, which almost concluding sermon, (laughs) is because God has given you life. He's given you the ability to sit. He's given you the ability to breathe air. He's given you everything in your life. So you must live your life with this in mind every single day. Live simple lives, brothers and sisters. Lives that are full of contentment and saturated in the things of God. And when you endure trials of various kinds, because we will endure trials of various kinds, do not lose heart, for God is with you. He is near. He is using your situation, whatever it is, whatever it is, to work in you something far greater than you could ever imagine. So as we conclude, I want to remind you, people of God, that in this life we will endure trials. And in these trials we need to trust God and His wisdom. And even if we fail and succumb to the temptations around us, it is our failings that cause us to turn to God for mercy as God offers mercy in His gospel through Christ. This is why in trial or tribulation, success or failure, richness or poverty, health or sickness, we can walk in this life with great assurance when we are in Christ. For even though we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. For his rod and staff, they shall comfort us. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When our time has come for us to meet our Savior face to face, we will receive the crown of life that he has promised, the eternal crown of victory over sin and death, where we will reign with our Savior for all eternity. And so, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, 23. Let's pray. Father, You are the Father of lights, as James tells us. I pray, Lord, that your word penetrates our hearts, Lord. One thing that is almost certain is that we all have our trials of various kinds that we are enduring. I pray, Lord, that you encourage your people. I pray that these words were an encouragement to them. I pray that we would cling to you so closely, Lord. You are our hope, our only hope. Thank you for the words of James to remind us of that. May we worship you, may we serve you, may we praise you, Lord, with all of our lives, every single one of us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.